In early 1865, John D. Rockefeller had been refining oil for a few years with his partners Samuel Andrews and Maurice Clark. He liked the business, but not the partners. At least, not Clark. Ten years Rockefeller's senior, Clark was volatile and dismissive of Rockefeller's ideas, especially his ideas about taking out loans. Whenever Rockefeller suggested the business should borrow some money, Clark exploded, threatening to dissolve their partnership. Rockefeller was done. He convinced Andrews they had to push Clark out entirely. And then, on February 1st, he sprung his trap. As usual, he brought up the fact that they should take out a loan. As usual, Clark exploded, threatening to dissolve the partnership. But this time, instead of backing down, Rockefeller called Clark's bluff. He ran to a local newspaper and stated their desire to dissolve publicly. The notice of their decision was printed for all the world to see. But Rockefeller's scheme wasn't done yet. The former partners agreed to auction off the firm. Clark arrived at the event with his lawyer. Rockefeller came alone, coolly remarking, I thought I could take care of so simple a transaction. The bidding started at $500. It climbed and climbed far above what Rockefeller thought the business was worth. But he didn't blink. He bid $72,500, over a million in 2021 dollars. And finally, Clark capitulated. It was a triumphant turning point in Rockefeller's life. The moment in which clever ruthlessness set him on a path to total domination of one of America's most valuable markets, oil. He was 25 years old. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season, we're exploring the Gilded Age, when the first American robber barons rose to power. Unlike most traditional dictators, these tyrants used financial power to control the lives of workers and create lasting inequality in the U.S. Today, we're exploring the life of John D. Rockefeller, American oil tycoon and one of the richest men of the early 20th century. By establishing a monopoly on oil production and refining, Rockefeller and his company, Standard Oil, came to epitomize the greed and ruthlessness of America's Gilded Age. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. 
This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The Rockefeller family traces its origins to the German Rhine Valley of the early 17th century. When John D. Rockefeller was on the verge of becoming the world's richest man, genealogists offered to concoct a family tree that would see him descended from an old line of royalty. In response, Rockefeller remarked simply, I am satisfied with my good old American stock. He liked the humble image of his farmer ancestors who, while occasionally tight on funds, remained solidly middle class. His mother, Eliza Davison, fit in with that story. She was a pious woman of some means. His father, William Big Bill Rockefeller, on the other hand, was a very peculiar man. Big Bill was a peddler, but also worked as a huckster and, at times, a traveling physician who pushed questionable herbal remedies. He was charismatic, but practically allergic to hard work. And then there were his women. Soon after he married Eliza, Big Bill brought his mistress, Nancy Brown, to live with them in their Richford, New York household, ostensibly as housekeeper. He had two illegitimate children with her. In July 1839, John Davison Rockefeller was born to Eliza. And soon after, Big Bill broke things off with Nancy. But that was no signal Big Bill was ready to settle down. He continued to live a profligate lifestyle, abandoning his family for months at a time. Later, Rockefeller learned that his father was living with yet another family. Big Bill would be a touchy subject for the rest of Rockefeller's life. Normally reserved and guarded, the few moments he burst out in a rage were often sparked by comments on the old man's faults. On one occasion, when Rockefeller was in his late 70s, his biographer was reading to him from journalist Ida Tarbell's character study of Big Bill. In it, she listed the elder Rockefeller's many faults before concluding, he had all the vices save one. He never drank. Rockefeller became uncharacteristically enraged, thundering against the poison tongue of this poison woman who seeks to poison the public with every endeavor. But for all his protective anger about Big Bill, as a child, he seemed to almost consciously avoid emulating his father. Perhaps out of embarrassment, or thanks to his mother's prudent influence, Rockefeller was an honest, pious, and hard-working boy. He put his nose to the grindstone early and with unusual cleverness. Around age seven, Rockefeller ran a little hustle, buying candy by the pound, breaking it into small portions, and then selling it to his siblings for a profit. At that same age, he stole the chicks of a wild turkey, raised them himself, and then sold them off. A few years later, Rockefeller loaned a farmer $50 at 7% interest, later collecting $3.50 in profit. 
that experience was transformative. He later recalled, The impression was gaining ground with me that it was a good thing to let the money be my slave and not make myself a slave to money. If you listened to last week's episode, this may sound reminiscent of Carnegie, who similarly delighted in investment, in making the money do the work for him. But Rockefeller liked mental work, too. He displayed an early aptitude for methodical, cautious calculations, even at simple games like checkers. According to historian Ron Chernow, to ensure that he won, he submitted to games only where he could dictate the rules. Despite his slow, ponderous style, once he had thoroughly mulled over his plan of action, he had the power of quick decision. Many of the characteristics that would later define Rockefeller the businessman were already taking shape, and few would be as important to him as his piety. A Baptist, Rockefeller likely inherited his strict Christian morality from his mother. But his father played a big hand, too. Big Bill once paid his son $5 to read the Bible cover to cover, which, in the words of Chernow, created an early, unintentional association between God and money. As it happened, a love of money was among the few characteristics Rockefeller inherited from his father. Not an especially rich man, Big Bill nevertheless tended to carry at least $1,000 in his pocket at all times and loved to show off a big wad of crisp bills. He also disdained banks, a trait later exhibited by Rockefeller. Instead, he put some cash toward his son's future. Rockefeller received more education than was typical for a rural family in the mid-19th century. After moving with his family to Strongsville, Ohio, Rockefeller started high school and later took bookkeeping courses. In 1855, at age 16, he got his first job as an assistant bookkeeper for a produce merchant. Then, in 1857, John D. took a $1,000 loan from Big Bill and bought a partnership in the firm of a British merchant. According to author Charles R. Morris, by the time Rockefeller was 20, he was already recognized as one of Cleveland's outstanding young merchants, honest, reliable, and with a shrewd sense of commodity markets. But his real opportunity for greatness didn't come till he was 20, when a discovery in neighboring Pennsylvania would change the course of his life and the future of the United States. Near Titusville, Pennsylvania, in an area already known as Oil Creek, a businessman named Colonel Edwin Drake struck oil. Humans had known about petroleum, or rock oil, for millennia. But there hadn't ever been much use for it until recently. Scientists had just discovered that rock oil could be refined into an industrial lubricant or fuel for lamps, providing a cheaper alternative to the whale and coal oil than in use. Virtually overnight, an oil boom, the first of its kind, sprung up in Pennsylvania with 75 oil rigs in operation by 1860. In 1861, the outbreak of the American Civil War escalated the demand for oil, as the precious black gold kept the Union's factories and steam engines running smoothly. Rockefeller saw what was happening just over state lines, and he was fascinated by the possibilities of oil. 
So he paid a $300 commutation fee to avoid the draft and started to examine the various sectors of the business. Drilling was a chaotic business, and according to historian H.W. Brands, Rockefeller's native caution and acquired puritanism recoiled from such chaos. He was willing to work, very hard if necessary, but only in a field where the rewards were less subject to wayward chance and ruinous competition. Refineries, on the other hand, were a less volatile bet. In 1863, together with business partners Maurice Clark and Samuel Andrews, Rockefeller built a refinery in Cleveland, Ohio. There, Rockefeller searched for every opportunity to reduce waste. Instead of paying plumbers, he bought his own pipe. Instead of paying coopers, he made his own oak barrels. The refining process created sulfur-based byproducts that seemed useless. Instead of dumping the runoff, Rockefeller figured out how to convert it into fertilizer. Rockefeller became, in a word, obsessed. His sister complained that he could talk of nothing but oil refining. His business partner Maurice Clark remarked, John had abiding faith in two things, the Baptist creed and oil. Another associate noted that the only time he ever saw the normally cool and reserved Rockefeller exhibit true enthusiasm was when he secured a cargo of oil below the market price. Rockefeller's partners did not show the same unbridled zeal for oil, nor the same calculating brain for business. Clark was older than Rockefeller and didn't care for his partner's youthful forthrightness. He routinely threatened to dissolve the partnership as a ploy to try to control Rockefeller. Instead, Rockefeller plotted with Samuel Andrews, called Clark's bluff, and successfully bought the older man out of the business. Two months later, Robert E. Lee surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox Courthouse. If there were any fears that peace would dampen business, they soon proved unfounded. Railroad construction and the rapid growth of the lamp oil market proved even more lucrative than the war. Cleveland businessmen like Rockefeller were in a unique position to exploit the demand. The city was a transportation hub for the whole Northeast. But Rockefeller didn't just want to ride the wave of prosperity. He wanted to dominate it. In order to conquer Cleveland, he focused on eliminating his competition, which meant running a tight ship. He watched his account books like a hawk, ensuring nothing went to waste. And he seized any opportunity to drive down costs. For example, Rockefeller experimented on reducing the drops of solder required to seal kerosene cans from 40 to 39. Other refiners wouldn't have bothered over such apparently insignificant details, but Rockefeller knew they added up. According to H.W. Brands, as John Rockefeller's refining costs fell, his price advantage over his rivals increased, allowing him to expand his market share. And as his market share expanded, he gained leverage both over the firms that supplied him his oil and over the companies that carried away his refined products. By the late 1860s, Rockefeller had used his leverage to become one of the largest oil shippers in Ohio. 
His success drew the attention of the infamous railroad tycoon and financial speculator Jay Gould. When it came to unscrupulous, underhanded business practices, Gould was nothing short of a wizard. And it didn't take long for his sinister influence to beguile young Rockefeller. Coming up, Rockefeller learns to play dirty, and the oil war erupts in Ohio. The most urgent mysteries in the world are missing persons cases. The stakes are too high not to pursue every plausible possibility, and some implausible ones too. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new podcast, Disappearances. In 2020, after spending years searching for the truth, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday on Spotify, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. From child abductions and mystifying murders to those who took drastic measures to start over, each episode of Disappearances journeys through a different high-profile missing persons case, ripped from the headlines and ripe for explanation. Because no one just vanishes into thin air. The answers are out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Hear a new episode every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now back to the story. By early 1868, 28-year-old John D. Rockefeller was already one of the most successful oil shippers in Ohio and quickly turning into a notable young tycoon. This brought him to the attention of Jay Gould, railroad magnate and financial speculator. Gould's money-making schemes put most would-be robber barons to shame. He controlled the major Erie Railway Company, which ran through the northeastern U.S., so it made sense for him to seek a deal with Ohio's most important oil refiner. Gould offered the young man a rebate on oil shipped from the Great Lakes to the Atlantic seaboard. Rockefeller not only agreed, he then applied the rebate system to other railroad networks. In essence, Rockefeller promised to use certain railroad companies in exchange for a discount. The whole thing was kept secret. The railroads didn't want other shippers to ask for a discount, too. And Rockefeller didn't want his competitors to gain insight into his cost-saving tactics. While not technically illegal, the whole scheme had a certain stink about it. The railroad rebates were essentially a kickback. But Rockefeller didn't see anything unethical about them. Rather, he believed that since he was such a big, reliable customer, he deserved a better rate. And keeping it all secret was, for Rockefeller, no different than a general keeping a lid on battle plans. Thanks to the rebate system, Rockefeller's business grew faster than ever. In 1870, he reincorporated his business into the Standard Oil Company, which by this time was the biggest oil refinery in the country. 
that still wasn't big enough. Rockefeller seemed determined that all oil be refined by the Standard Oil Company. His keen drive didn't seem to be the result of ruthless greed, though, but rather an almost obsessive meticulousness mixed with prudence. This trait manifested itself most clearly in his drive to eliminate waste. According to Brands, to Rockefeller, competition was wasteful. A bigger company meant bigger facilities, which meant more production, which led to greater profits, but also lower prices for customers. As Standard Oil grew, the price of its product dropped, and more people could afford more kerosene, tar, and paraffin. How could that be unethical? Or so the pious Rockefeller probably asked. The goal, then, was to eliminate wasteful competition altogether. To that end, in 1871, Rockefeller colluded with other large refiners and railroads to create a cartel called the South Improvement Company. The cartel's purpose was simple, to corner the market, secure profits, and eliminate competition. The cartel didn't remain a secret for very long. When word got out, oil producers were outraged. As, in the long run, the cartel would drive down the price of their crude and gut their business. Most of these producers were two-bit operations, farmers or shopkeepers by day who ran an oil well or two on the side. Thousands of them joined forces and launched the so-called Oil War, an embargo against Rockefeller and the South Improvement Company. According to Brands, the campaign assumed the air of a crusade, with the producers holding solidarity rallies praising their own devotion to democracy and equal opportunity and damning the refiners and railroads as plutocratic oppressors. The cartel attempted the age-old strategy of divide and conquer, trying to lure away producers from the embargo with special discounts. One of the producers courted in this manner was a man named Frank Tarbell. Rather than succumb to the cartel's offer of a lucrative cash buyout, Frank spat in its face and held true to the producer's alliance. His integrity set a proud example for his daughter Ida, who would go on to become one of Rockefeller's greatest enemies. And Frank Tarbell wasn't the only producer who held firm. In the end, the cartel failed to break up the embargo and the South Improvement Company collapsed less than a year after it was founded. Rockefeller, however, wasn't daunted. He just decided he had to get more aggressive. If cooperating with a cartel wouldn't work, then he would just have to buy out as many competitors as he could until there was only one big company left, Standard Oil. Instead of cooperation, he'd use domination. It's tempting to imagine Rockefeller as a many-tentacled monster, reaching out to strangle his competitors and feed on their bodies. But he wasn't quite so fearsome. One of his rivals even described him as an honest man who always bought out his competition at a fair price. A favored tactic was to show a competitor the Standard Oil books. Taking one look at the behemoth, most realized that competition was futile and swiftly capitulated. Rockefeller offered cash, or Standard Oil stock, and those who accepted stock were soon minted millionaires. According to Brands, 
Rockefeller came to believe that many of those who criticized his takeover campaign were really angry at themselves for insisting on cash and thereby missing the chance to grow rich on standard stock. But Rockefeller could be tough as nails, too. When a competitor refused a generous buyout offer, he went to war. Thanks to his lower production and transportation costs, he could afford to undercut the prices of anyone else in the business. Another favored tactic was to arrange for shortages of railcar transports near arrival or to buy up all nearby barrels of crude and starve them out. Rockefeller never doubted that he was in the right. Or if he did, he never expressed his doubts. He later remarked that many of the companies he bought out were old junk and that Standard Oil was an angel of mercy who had done them a favor. Steadily, throughout the 1870s, Standard Oil gobbled up competitors. But Rockefeller wasn't one to rest on his laurels. He continued to innovate. When the railroad companies hesitated to invest in recently invented tanker cars, Rockefeller simply built the cars himself, as he had done with oak barrels at his first refinery. Then he leased the tanker cars to the railroads. After tanker cars, Rockefeller poured money into newfangled pipelines. Meanwhile, the tycoon worked to consolidate Standard Oil. Technically, the company itself didn't buy out rivals, but rather its directors purchased competitors themselves. This technicality allowed Rockefeller to note that he didn't, strictly speaking, own a monopoly, even if, for all intents and purposes, he did. There was a downside to this tactic, though. Standard Oil was a patchwork of princelings, all of whom had to be shepherded by Rockefeller whenever he wanted to get something done. To concentrate and simplify his control of the company, Rockefeller established the Standard Oil Trust in 1882. Formerly, trust simply meant one person holding something for another. But Rockefeller and his lawyers created something novel, the combination of several companies controlled by a board of trustees with the implicit goal of eliminating competition. According to Brands, there was nothing especially nefarious about the arrangement. Similar schemes occurred to other corporate lawyers about the same time. But neither was it something Rockefeller boasted about. In fact, he did just the opposite, covering his trail with dissimulation and denial. By the time the trust came together, Rockefeller's company refined nine out of ten oil barrels in the country. But even 90% wasn't enough. Standard Oil still relied on outside producers to provide the crude that they refined. Rockefeller didn't like that. When he had started out, Rockefeller had considered drilling to be too much of a gamble. But now that Standard Oil was large enough to absorb any losses incurred by a dry well or two, he felt that the profits he could make through vertical integration were well worth the risk. An opportunity soon presented itself. Considering how big Standard Oil had become, it may be surprising to learn that virtually all of the oil produced in the United States still came from the same Pennsylvania sources Edwin Drake had first tapped into. By the mid-1880s, however, that well was running dry, and prospectors had begun to look for alternatives. A significant source was soon found at the Lima, Indiana fields 
near the Ohio-Indiana border. But there was a problem with the lima oil. It was tainted with so much stinking sulfur that it was nicknamed skunk juice. The kerosene it produced smelled so foul that no consumer would buy it. No one in the oil industry wanted to touch it. Except Rockefeller. He grabbed as much of the Lima, Indiana fields as he could. Perhaps it was faith in his chemists, or faith in his god, or both. But Rockefeller was certain that Standard Oil would figure out a way to cheaply remove the sulfur from the crude, and the expensive purchase would pay off. It was a big gamble. Standard Oil spent millions to prepare for the exploitation of the Lima fields. Rockefeller soon had over 40 million barrels of Lima crude in storage tanks, which would be all but worthless if his chemists couldn't get out the stink. Despite his faith, Rockefeller was aware of this. So to hedge his bets, he concocted a backup plan. He dispatched a legion of salesmen and technicians to convince railroad companies to burn oil instead of coal. They also encouraged hotels and factories to switch from coal furnaces to oil burners. If skunk juice couldn't be sold as lamp oil, then maybe it could at least be offloaded as fuel. In the meantime, in 1886, Rockefeller hired an accomplished German chemist named Hermann Frosch. And as it turned out, the backup plan had been unnecessary. By October 1888, Frosch had developed a process whereby copper oxides were introduced to the crude to remove its sulfur, rendering it, in late 19th century parlance, merchantable. Rockefeller had successfully made yet another fortune and cemented his reputation as an industrial prophet. He'd also introduced science into American business in a way that was pretty much unprecedented. According to Ron Chernow, when Frosch cracked the riddle of Lima crude, he was probably the only trained petroleum chemist in the United States. By the time Rockefeller retired, he had a test laboratory in every refinery. Rockefeller parlayed the Lima profits into another buying spree, acquiring Union Oil and three other large-scale producers in 1890. Simultaneously, he bought over 300,000 acres of land in Pennsylvania and West Virginia. Standard Oil spent $22 million on these and other purchases over a two-year period. By 1891, at age 52, Rockefeller controlled a quarter of U.S. oil production. The Standard Oil Leviathan seemed all-powerful. But that very success made it an obvious target. And Rockefeller's enemies were already plotting to find the company's vulnerabilities. Coming up, Rockefeller fights back against the reforming zeal of federal regulators. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. 
You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, back to the story. By 1890, the 51-year-old John D. Rockefeller had grown Standard Oil into a true behemoth of American business. But in doing so, he failed to appreciate just how many enemies he'd made along the way, or just how hard they were prepared to fight him. They resented that he'd created a monopoly, and they turned to the law for help. A grassroots campaign by victims and opponents of Rockefeller, alongside genuinely concerned citizens, led to Congress passing the Sherman Antitrust Act in 1890. The law prohibited, quote, every contract, combination in the form of trust or otherwise, or conspiracy in restraint of trade or commerce among the several states or with foreign nations. That sounds like gibberish to a layman but apparently to lawyers and politicians, too. Despite the law's intentions to break monopolies, its vague language opened the road to a plethora of loopholes, earning the act an unflattering nickname, the Swiss Cheese Act. Further, since it barred cooperation between trade associations, it actually encouraged companies to merge and ended up resulting in more concentration rather than less. Thus, at least initially, the legislation had little effect on Standard Oil. In fact, in its early years, the act was mostly used to attack labor unions. Rockefeller, meanwhile, was so unperturbed by it that he donated to the re-election campaign of its author, Senator John Sherman of Ohio. If the Sherman Antitrust Act was toothless, however, that didn't mean Standard Oil was invulnerable. In 1889, Ohio's Attorney General David K. Watson ambled into a small bookstore in Columbus and discovered a cheap book called Trusts, The Recent Combinations in Trade. Situated in the book's appendix was a copy of Standard Oil's trust deed. Watson was horrified to discover that Standard Oil of Ohio was, in fact, controlled by trustees in New York thus violating Ohio's state charter, and thus illegal in that state. After Watson took his discovery to the state Supreme Court, the Standard Oil Trust was forced to dissolve in 1892. This might have seemed like a crushing blow dashing Rockefeller's hopes of creating a monopoly, except that he simply reorganized the trust in New Jersey, where such a trust was legal. Still, the incident reflected a growing public concern over Standard Oil and its practices. According to Chernow, by the late 1880s, it seemed as if half the country wanted to lynch John D. Rockefeller, while the other half only wanted to cadge a loan from him. Rockefeller dismissed the groaning of citizens and politicians as hypocrisy. In effect, they were just jealous. But the angry tide just kept growing. For many, Standard Oil represented everything that was wrong in a quickly changing America. The country's industrial revolution, greatly accelerated by the Civil War, ushered in a period of remarkable progress. 
but it also led to an unprecedented expansion of corporate greed and government corruption. Standard Oil seemed like the perfect symbol for that greed and ruthlessness. The newspapers contributed to the impression, especially through articles concerning Rockefeller's ever-growing wealth. Meanwhile, the thousands of small producers who had gone to war against Rockefeller's cartel helped paint Rockefeller as an unstoppable Goliath beating down hordes of little Davids. Perhaps most important of all, however, was the fact that Rockefeller seemed simply blind to public anger, and so did little to combat it. Had he ever stopped to contemplate it, he probably would have been confused about why people didn't appreciate how much he'd driven down the price of oil. Meanwhile, though, he had other things to worry about, like the light bulb, which threatened to gut his business by replacing kerosene lamps. Luckily, though, around the same time the light bulb went mainstream, the motor car arrived, thirsty for gasoline. More wells, pipes, and property were vacuumed up. When a geodetic club declared that they planned to measure the whole of the Earth, the world newspaper quipped that the measurements would enable the Standard Oil Trust and other trusts to learn the exact size of their property. This monumental success, however, was accompanied by one major blow, health problems. In the mid-1890s, Rockefeller started to relinquish his responsibilities to other executives, particularly his fiery protege, John D. Archbold. In 1897, after a significant medical scare, Rockefeller retired, and from then on made only rare appearances at company headquarters. At the time of his retirement, his net worth was probably around $200 million. For comparison, the average annual income of an American worker around that time would have been about $440. But Rockefeller never announced his retirement to the public and continued on as the official president of Standard Oil of New Jersey. Thus, when his successor Archbold battled with government regulators or made some blunder, like wantonly bribing elected officials, it was Rockefeller who took the blame especially in the eyes of the public, who continued to see Rockefeller as a symbol of monopolistic greed. The loudest, most vitriolic, and ultimately most effective criticism came from journalist Ida Tarbell, who, according to Brands, had nursed her father's grudge against John Rockefeller for decades. Writing for McClure's magazine, Tarbell published a series of articles on Standard Oil between 1902 and 1903 that were then collected into a book. Though her facts were sometimes off the mark, her work was thorough and her prose was powerful and convincing, particularly when she insisted that Standard Oil was a monopoly that strangled all competition. According to Charles Morris, her story is a morality play the stalwart independent producers and refiners of the region fighting a hopeless struggle against a distant corporation personified by a soulless John D. Rockefeller. Thanks to Tarbell's pioneering investigative journalism, or muckraking, depending on your perspective, Standard Oil became intrinsically linked with public fears about corporate greed and reckless power. And finally, a real fusillade of antitrust litigation was leveled against the company. 
By the summer of 1907, Standard Oil was blasted with 13 state and federal antitrust lawsuits. In 1907, one of these called Rockefeller himself to the witness stand. While being questioned, Rockefeller in his late 60s pretended to be a bewildered, senile old man. When the judge asked him what Standard Oil's business was, Rockefeller feigned confusion, and after several befuddled pauses, replied, I believe, Your Honor, they operate an oil refinery in New Jersey. The judge didn't buy it. He slapped Standard Oil with a $29 million fine, the largest in American history thus far. When Rockefeller learned of the fine, he was in the middle of a golf game. He merely shrugged and continued playing. Quite possibly, his poker-faced reaction concealed incredible rage. But if it did, Rockefeller never displayed a trace of it in public. Instead, a more fanciful reaction to news of the $29 million fine came from Mark Twain, who was surprised at how large the fine was. Ultimately, the hefty fine was reversed on appeal, but they were still in trouble with other suits. Finally, in 1910, a 1906 suit brought by the United States Bureau of Corporations reached the Supreme Court. At the time the case was filed, Standard Oil was more than 20 times larger than its closest competitor and controlled nearly 90% of the kerosene market. Rockefeller insisted that the case was flimsy and the whole thing was just political posturing by President Theodore Roosevelt. That wasn't true. But Roosevelt had been more lenient toward U.S. Steel and other conglomerates, thanks to executives at those companies prostrating themselves before regulators and agreeing to correct violations. Archbold, meanwhile, had believed Standard Oil was invincible and took an antagonistic track with Roosevelt. The vice president of Standard Oil had been groomed by Rockefeller, but now he was proving difficult for the old master to control, which made it impossible for Rockefeller to enjoy retirement. According to Chernow, his fortune had failed to purchase him even a poor man's might of tranquility. As nominal president of Standard Oil, he was in a bind, responsible for actions he had not approved. Rockefeller, in an attempt to extricate himself from the mess, tried to resign from Standard Oil. The great tycoon was reduced to begging Archbold to accept the resignation. Archbold refused, and Rockefeller reluctantly withdrew his resignation. Thus, Rockefeller was compelled to remain in the hot seat while the Supreme Court decided the fate of Standard Oil. On May 15, 1911, the Supreme Court upheld a circuit court decision that required Standard Oil to dismantle. The trust was given six months to break off its subsidiaries. Once again, when Rockefeller heard the news, he was playing golf, this time with a Catholic priest. After a messenger told him the news, Rockefeller simply turned to the priest and encouraged him to buy Standard Oil stock. Rockefeller foresaw the consequences of the decision to dismantle Standard Oil. According to Morris, trustbusters thought they were slaying a dangerous monster when the Standard was broken up in 1911. Instead, they were doing the shareholders, and especially John Rockefeller, a large favor. After Standard Oil was split up and its individual companies went on the market, 
their value skyrocketed. During the preceding 10 years, the value of the newly independent companies quintupled. At its peak in 1913, Rockefeller's personal wealth reached about $900 million, or very roughly about $25 billion in 2021 dollars. He made more money in retirement than he did while working. Perhaps to repair the family reputation, or perhaps out of genuine Christian charity, he became a robust philanthropist. In total, he donated around $500 million to charitable causes, including the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research, the Rockefeller Foundation, the General Education Board, the University of Chicago, and many others. In his personal life, though, he remained as thrifty as ever. During a family outing to Ormond Beach, the elder Rockefeller told his butler to saw firewood at 12 inches instead of 14. The slightly shorter sticks produced an acceptable amount of light and heat while saving pennies. On May 23, 1937, the 97-year-old John D. Rockefeller lapsed into a coma and died officially from heart failure. According to his New York Times obituary, his was, quote, probably the greatest amount of wealth that any private citizen had ever been able to accumulate by his own efforts. And according to Chernow, John D. Rockefeller Sr. had left behind a contradictory legacy. An amalgam of godliness and greed, compassion and fiendish cunning, he personified the ambiguous heritage of America's Puritan ancestors who had encouraged thrift and enterprise, but had also spurred overly acquisitive instincts. Rockefeller had served as an emblem of both corporate greed and philanthropic enlightenment. The final judgment on Rockefeller, then, remains elusive. Perhaps the best summation comes in the form of an exchange that's starkly reminiscent of Henry Clay Frick's message to our last robber baron, Andrew Carnegie. Tell him I'll see him in hell, where we both are going. The elderly Rockefeller was near the end of his life. He had a meeting with automobile tycoon Henry Ford, and as he left, he said, Goodbye. I'll see you in heaven. Ford responded bluntly, you will, if you get in. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll explore the life of railroad and shipping magnate Cornelius Vanderbilt. Among the many sources we used, we found Titan, the Life of John D. Rockefeller by Ron Chernow, and American Colossus, The Triumph of Capitalism by H.W. Brands, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Dictators was written by Devin Hughes, with writing assistance by Tony Goodman and Nora Patel, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard 
and Richard Rossner. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for an exploration into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Following timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the truth. From prison breaks and child abductions to second chances and even murder. We'll journey through the many reasons people disappear. Follow my new podcast, Disappearances, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.